Hello, and welcome to another live edition of the Presentable Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Dean, and we are again recording with a live audience on stage of the New Adventures Conference at Albert Hall in Nottingham, England. Hello, audience. Very nice. Very nice. There have been four amazing speakers at the afternoon of this conference, and I'm pleased to have all of them on the stage with me. Let's just go over who we have with us. First of all is Liz Jackson founder of The Disabled List, a design organization that engages in disability as a creative practice. She spoke about how tech's obsession with productivity has unintended negative effect of reinforcing disability. Welcome, Liz. Thank you. Uh, Next up is Laura Kalbag. She's a British designer living in Ireland and author of the book Accessibility for Everyone. In her talk, she discussed the growing contribution of design to the surveillance state and what we can do about it. Laura, welcome. Thank you. It's good to have you back on the show. We had you on a, uh, about a year ago. On yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah, it was fantastic. Uh, and next to her is Florence Okoye, a user experience designer at London's Natural History Museum, whose practice centers on inclusivity. She discussed the challenges of designing holistic sustainability, privacy, and security issues we have not yet, uh, for, for issues we have not yet encountered. Welcome, Florence. Ooh. <laughs> and finally, we have independent American designer Tatiana Mack, who's talked help us break through binary thinking omnipresent in technology to go into a more intersectional and inclusive way to build for everybody. Welcome. You're not not glad to be here. That's fantastic. Let's pass the microphone back and forth to just make sure. I don't think yours yours is on, but we'll we'll soldier through. Uh, Liz, let me start with you. Um, I, you really opened my eyes uh, to two things at the beginning of your talk, which I was totally unaware of, and that is both disability and empathy are relatively modern inventions. They've only been around maybe about a century. Disability coming from kind of the Industrial Revolution as a way of segregating people between their ability to be productive and their ability not to be, which didn't exist in society before humans had to be resources, right? Um, uh, and that empathy as well, a relatively modern thing that has become sort of twisted in our, ability, our inability for us to be able to separate out empathy and pity and how that informs the design process, especially for what we have traditionally called accessibility. That's very, very interesting, and I, and I appreciate that perspective. Um, you talk, there, there's always been a lot of talk, at least recently in the design world, about including people with disabilities in the design process uh, as a sort of co-design, but it sounded like you really kind of rejected that idea as instead uh, uh, that being a further sort of propagation of this power structure of like, we'll decide when we bring you in. Um, it sounds like a kind of activism almost. How do we, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, um, this idea of disability-led design or really allowing disabled people to lead design processes, it it currently is a form of activism, uh, just simply for the fact that it hasn't been done and the the power structures that create these situations where disabled people in society, again, are perceived as recipients rather than drivers of design. Um, But I turn to stories, you know, throughout history. One of my favorite stories is... um, does anybody here use finger works? It's always such a good story. So back in 1998, there was a guy, his name was Wayne Westerman, um, and he had some carpal tunnel and, and tendinitis, and he decided that he wanted to create a technology that would allow himself to continue working, and so he created finger works. And then in 2005, Steve Jobs bought that technology. It's the iPhone touchscreen, right? Yeah. So the question is, is it, you know, does anybody here use finger works? You know, 
And <laughs> the answer is very much yet, yes, you know, that's the case. And yet when it comes to design processes, you know, people don't think to, to turn to our knowledge for value, right? They think that they need to feel empathy for us. It's, it's like, fully ingrained in our design processes. And what happens is, is you end up with solutions that recreate disability rather than solving whatever it is that you sort of claim out, set out to do. In the, the, the idea of bringing, um, of, of using um, uh, disabled uh, people to help with design or to create the design and bring that in, that sort of activism, um, are there many? Many. Designers with disabilities. Um, I, I think the number is extraordinarily high. Um, I don't know that we could possibly get a count on it uh, right now, uh, purely for the reason of who identifies as disabled, who sees themselves as disabled. Sure. Um, you know, I think a lot of designers who do experience disability wouldn't actually um, feel that they fit in the bucket of disability, so that limits the numbers. Yeah. I, then there are the ways in which these processes keep disabled people at bay. Um, and then furthermore, you know, I think of, I have a friend, Cindy Bennett, she's a blind design researcher, and um, there are things that we take for granted in design, such as post-it notes, right? Mm. And so th- through these very simple um, assumptions, we actually... F- fundamentally exclude uh, really important people from the process. Even in the tools that we use to design yeah, so that's are actually, exclusionary. And that's actually what she's doing is, is she's working with you know various organizations to make their design tools accessible to her. Wow, fantastic. There's a strong theme running through all the talks uh, this afternoon um, that the way technology is made is perpetuating the inequalities and injustice in the, uh, in the world. And in particular, the role of design and designer in that process. Um, uh, Laura, I, I thought you gave some really just fantastic and chilling examples of what uh, company of what data companies are collecting, and how it's used and sold without our even our ability to opt out, let alone our permission. Right? Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit to the people in this room who are practice designers and the people listening online. Um, what can they do when they are told by their companies to do something that they feel is a violation of user privacy? I mean, uh, it seems like putting your job on the line, saying, no, I'm not going to do that, is an incredibly privileged position that many people can't just like walk away from their livelihood because they feel like they're being asked to do something unethical. So I wonder, yeah. what, what do we do? It, it is a privileged position to be in, but that's why I kind of structured those different roles and different ways we can inhabit these things. It's the same way as we encourage any kind of change in design so for example if we were advocating for like better accessibility in a product what one of the things that we would be doing is we would be saying hey look we need to do this we need to pay attention to this it would be wrong not to and we have to take the same attitude when it comes to privacy we have to take the same attitude when it comes to anything that harms anyone else like i think there are points at which we have to say or am I prioritizing myself over like, the harm that I am causing to other people? If we're looking at a scale of who has privilege, well, yeah, sure, I might risk a ticking off from my boss for asking for something, but hey, how is that decision that I'm making and staying quiet affecting way more people who are way more vulnerable than me? And so I think we do have to take responsibility. And what I try to always do is emphasize on that Sometimes when you think something is on the line and sometimes when you think you're at risk, you're not really. Like, a lot of the time, we're actually protecting ourselves not because we're genuinely in danger, but because we don't want the discomfort. 
We don't want the awkwardness of telling our boss that we think they're doing something wrong. We don't want the social like difficulty of calling someone out. That's it's not a nice feeling creating like tension like that. But that's not an adequate excuse for not doing it. And so I think a lot of the time when we think we are going to cause trouble for ourselves, it's not as bad as we think it is. You know, one of the things in Florence in your presentation that really struck me uh, was this, this quote that you said, the machine is too big for us to fight on our own. And I wonder how that ties into what, what you're saying here, that, that we need collective action, that we need to join together. And I wonder if that is part of the solution. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's interesting because that's pretty much what inspired a lot of the kind of research and thinking and work I've been trying to do. Because, you know, I was giving quite a, a lot of talks and being in discussions talking about what is genuinely like decentering the designer what is actually decoupling that relationship between the designer and power and the post and the design process and actually I had some really great you know friends and people working in the tech communities that I was talking to who are like okay that's lovely but in reality where the hell do I go to meet these people and so we started thinking about places like impact hubs and other like community networks that people could perhaps tap into but then that leads to the whole question of is it right, actually, if you've had nothing to do with that community since beforehand, right? Yeah. Um, and, that, and, and so that's kind of where this almost obsession, I suppose, with this collective action came in, because say if we're then talking about, okay, we, we don't want to make um, any technology that's particular, that's any more surveillance than, like, currently is. Okay, well, then someone could potentially... I mean, actually, I really loved when you said, like, often the risk isn't that you're going to be fired because it's actually quite expensive to rehire yes, more people. But anyway, but let's say even if you are going to be fired, well, then words get, word gets around the company why you got fired and then the person who comes to replace you hears that and understands, okay, I'm not going to do that because I don't want to get fired. And so then the only way really is for someone to be able to tap into a wider network to be able to say, okay, if you, if you really want to fire me, fine, but watch out because say in this case there's a whole community at Mozilla for example who will make a real stink about this because especially considering how much work at the moment Mozilla is kind of or at least they're putting a lot of focus on this particular area um or say I mean now we're in a really interesting situation where you know quite a lot of problematic companies are also leading the way in or at least creating these more public frameworks around inclusive design you can then start saying okay cool well I can let folks on Twitter who work at Microsoft and IBM who've created a whole framework for how we should be doing this, I can let them know that you're going to fire me for, um, doing it, for not, for not um, going along with this way of working. Yeah. But I think actually, because I, again, because of those power dynamics as well, that's also what's made me particularly conscious about how we, I think we do need to do a lot more almost like on the mid-tier level um, to support each other so that we can we won't be in that position, or at least we're less likely to be in that position um, of fear or feeling that you're going to take it all by yourself to make that change. It's been really interesting to see the tools of, of collective action that have been kind of emerging from uh, employees within Google or within Microsoft, right? right? And the, the, the ability to organize and walk out or to demand change from the direction that they see. Or, or not, because if you join a union, they fire you. <laughs> which is what's happened. And yep. that's what I was going to say. I can imagine Natalie is somewhere waving her arms about saying, unions, unions, because that's one of the ways that if we join a union, we can actually have enforcement um, of collection, collective action and protect each other and protect each other's jobs as well. 
What do you think of the idea of licensing? That's, I've, I've heard sort of proposals for licensing and user experience or design uh, similar to what a lawyer or a doctor might have, where somebody comes to you and says, I want you to design this. You say, I can't. I'll lose my license. Who decides who gets a license? It's a set of uh, industry sort of standards. Like Google and Facebook, the same people who partake in the W3C, should they be defining who gets a Could license? very well, propag again, propagate the systems of inequality, sure. Um, uh, but organizing unions coming up from the bottom saying, can we, uh, can we define a way of being that we could enforce? Yeah, because I mean, sorry, and I know we have to kind of move on with questions, because I, I do think there's something really ironic about how we work in tech, and we're meant to be this new, progressive, we're looking to new ways of doing things, and yet we come, we insist somehow that the mistakes of the past are something that we can't learn from right. so yeah this kind of stuff has happened yeah lawyers it, it's happened in fact i'm not even going to go into any of that i'm going to look into other engineering fields civil engineers um architects um urban planners all again have to work according uh, or at least there are um, bodies and ways of working which means that okay you cannot do something that's particular that's unethical or violates the code of this particular union or guild which is right. essentially what they are we can learn from the mistakes of, say, of the power structures that get created. So, because then the question is, okay, so, I mean, like, what are the fees someone has to pay to become part of this system? Like, those, those are definitely problems that will arise, but they're things that actually I do think we can solve. There's so many other precedents. Like, I mean, basically the entire of, like, the 19th, I mean, in, in the UK from, like, basically from the levelers onwards, we've got about 500 years of working class organising to let us know how we can create ways of accountability that don't perpetuate the same power struggles that we find within modern day unions or like the, art, the body of architects or whatever, right? Yeah. So we can, we can find ways of keeping ourselves accountable while still dealing with those problematic power dynamics that can arise. Absolutely, absolutely. And we've seen steps in that direction with sort of uh, mandates towards accessibility and things like that. Um, so, yeah, 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 for sure. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by our friends at Kensington. These are the people who make universal docking stations that are designed to increase your productivity. It's so easy to use. You can get access to far more parts on your laptop and make your nice MacBook, Chromebook, or other laptop as powerful as a desktop. It's plug and play with no drivers, so you can enjoy up to dual 4K displays with HDMI and DisplayLink video connectors, plus USB 3, USB-C, and Thunderbolt 3 with power delivery available. The Kensington engineering team has three decades of experience making these things uh, in high volume manufacturing and all sorts of other IT products as well. Plus, they have rigorous test cycles and quality control. That means all their products are tested above industry standards. So if you're an IT decision maker looking to find the right docking solution for your organization, check out Kensington's Pro Concierge program and test drive any one of their docking stations today. Visit kensington.com slash presentable right now to check out the Kensington Docking Stations. That's kensington.com slash presentable to learn more. Thanks to Kensington for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Uh, Tatiana, let's, um, let's get to you. The, uh, your talk was fascinating sort of historical approach to uh, or, or tour through mathematics, um, Boolean logic to sort of how the fundamental binary systems um, in our computers today sort of emerged, right? And I thought, uh, I just thought it was absolutely fascinating. Earlier in my career, I remember thinking uh, how nice it must be for people who write code uh, because every time they type something, the computer tells them if it's right or wrong. 
And I remember thinking that because with my work, I never knew. It was just always so ambiguous. Is it designed right or is it designed wrong? How do I find out? The computer never tells me. And I wonder if the, um, the sort of complexity of human experience that we deal with in design compared to the logical truth of binary systems in our computers helps explain a little bit of the challenges between designers and developers and how they collaborate and communicate. I'm wondering if you ever thought about that. I think that this is a really perfect example in the framing of this question, how we perpetuate these binaries within our own thought, that we separate designers from developers. But I identify as a developer, which is someone who maybe started in design, but I really enjoy coding. Uh, the, the other end of that spectrum uh, would be a dev designer. So if you started in development, we move into design. So you're welcome for these additional terms. But <laughs> I would say that when we look at ourselves, instead of quantifying ourselves as designers or developers, we quantify what parts of the process influence the design and the development and how they interconnect. I think when we start to own our products more collectively, which I think is intrinsically an anti-colonial idea, working as a community rather than as individuals who are tiered, I think that's where we start to begin uh, to, to collaborate better that the fact that we even have these titles and then we have these infrastructures within companies, you know, there are design-led companies uh, where they treat their developers really crappily. And then you have uh, engineering-led teams that treat their designers and project managers crappily. Those are all systems of, of this capitalist colonist structure. And so we need to dismantle those structures as we build new ones. And and to what Florence said, we need to look at work that's already been done. I think the biggest mistake I made working in advocacy advocacy is thinking that many of the ideas I had were original. They were not. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think the the history uh, lesson that you gave us all showed just the building and building and building on top of other appropriation of a lot of the ideas as well. But but yeah, the sort of standing on the shoulders of giants kind of trope, I think. Um, yeah, definitely came through. Uh, should we take an audience question or two? Let's see. So uh, one for Liz that came up was, um, bearing in mind the things that you mentioned in your talk and the idea of like um, maybe moving away from co-design and letting disabled people design as leads, etc. Uh, how do you feel about um, designers using things like um, tools that allow them to see how someone with vision impairment and so on um, views things and kind of aided technology like that to, to assist designers? Yeah, I mean, there's a few studies on this idea of, of simulation and sort of these empathy simulations, um, which are the, we find incredibly problematic. Um, and one of the studies, what they found is, is that simulations actually ultimately uh, increase uh, the stigma of disability um, and make people more fearful of it. Um, I feel like I could go a couple of directions with this. Um, you know, one of the things that, and I know I rag on IDEO, and it's sort of a fun pastime for me, but um, IDEO decided that they were going to create a voting a voting machine, and one of the things that they did was is they decided that they were they they got this like turquoise eye like eye mask, and it had these gold like like eyelashes on it, and they put it on this designer, and they asked him to go and be blind and navigate the BART, the San Francisco train. Um, and he just, you know, he, he, you, you felt such shame watching him. Like, he clearly had no clue what he was doing. 
Um, but IDEO had lauded this as uh, a design, a useful design activity, something that would have been product- productive in the design process. But all you had to do was go onto YouTube and type in blind, you know, San Francisco BART. And what comes up is this really, you know, knowledgeable blind woman who goes up, knows exactly how to use the machine, shows how it's done, and um, is, is incredibly dignified in the process. And so, you know, it's these kind of little ways that... Um, I find, you know, simulation to be problematic. I think, um, for me, it's about how do you reduce fear, and I think the, one of the ways you can reduce fear is, is really allow other people to let you in on their knowledge. Mm, that's great. Yeah. You wanna... Okay, and a question here for Laura. Uh, what's your opinion on, in, on using things like third-party services to gather feedback and analytics that provide insights that we use specifically for user experience as designers? Well, I think what Liz just said actually speaks to that to some degree talk to people rather than having to kind of put all of these scripts and things between you because then a lot of the time you're testing things that don't exist yet and you're also divining reason you're both deciding what the question should be and you're divining what the answer should be at the same time without sort of having any research behind it so actually talking to the people who use your site is probably way better I mean there are a few sort of third-party um, things that you can do to have statistics and stuff like that that are kind of useful to know about your site. Um, there's one example is, uh, I think someone asked on the questions as well, uh, a good analytics tool. And it's one that is privacy respecting and it has the name Goat Counter. <laughs> but one of the things that's actually really good about Goat Counter as well is that they have designed it with web accessibility in mind as well. So they clearly care about trying to build something that is not just privacy-respecting, but rights-respecting as well. Can I just follow on on that? Um, uh, I really appreciated this sort of juxtaposition between big tech and small tech that you were making, and having more control over the software that you run and more, um, more access to the underlying code and things like that. I, I seldom see those tools that give us more control uh, matching the sort of ease of use. It still takes quite a bit of technical knowledge to do that. It seems like a huge opportunity, but also still a challenge right now to embrace that. I wonder if you... Yeah, what we have to do is if we're working on building alternatives to mainstream technology, what we have to do is we have to build things that are also convenient and functional and reliable and all of these things, and then just also happen to respect our rights. Because very few people will probably even go out looking for an app or a tool thinking, right, I need to find something that respects my privacy. People are going, okay, I'm looking for something that means I can send a photo to my friend. Mm -hmm. And so what we have to do is we just have to build all the cool, fun stuff that we want to build, um, but make sure that at the same time and underneath it all in the infrastructure we are respecting people's rights and we're building things that aren't exploiting them. Mm, yeah. Well, I think there's probably a little optimism around the general perception that, wow, Facebook has really got all my stuff and, and what's this thing called Telegraph or what is Signal? You know, like maybe I should look at something that all my photos are not going into some big giant machine. I think there is a little bit of that in the mainstream culture. There's some awareness, but also there's no alternative to Facebook as a whole. Right. And it's the same way as someone will be like, how do I give up Google? You can't find one other company that is going to replicate everything that they offer and do so in a way that respects your rights because 
I mean, it's nigh on impossible to do. You don't have that level of scale. And so, yeah, you will probably have to find little things that um, you have to piece together, like, oh, I'll use this tool for this and that tool for that. But actually, that's probably a good thing. You don't want to be trusting another company with everything in your life. Yeah. This episode of Presentable is brought to you by FontSelf. Whatever project you're working on, it's important to get the font just right. But sometimes you just can't find what you're looking for. Well, what if I told you that you could quickly turn any letter form into open type fonts right from Illustrator and Photoshop thanks to a cool extension called FontSelf? It's so easy. Just drag and drop your custom letters onto the font self panel, hit save, and enjoy your own font anywhere you want. And it's a pretty mighty tool, too. You can create li- custom ligatures and alternate glyphs, plus save countless days of work with a new feature called Smart Spacing and Smart Kerning, which uses optical adjustment so your font looks instantly great and properly spaced. FontSelf have partnered with Adobe, so you can create colorful fonts with full shades, gradients, or textures, and they'll look exactly like how you design them in Illustrator or Photoshop. FontSelf Maker costs a one-time fee of $49, and you can get it by visiting FontSelf.com and using the coupon code PRESENTABLE to get a 10% discount. Find out why top designers and tens of thousands of creatives have already adopted FontSelf. Once more, go to fontself.com, that's F-O-N-T-S-E-L-F.com, and use the code PRESENTABLE for 10% off. Our thanks to FontSelf for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Any more questions here? Yeah, one final question for the whole of the panel. Um, thinking about the intersection of futures, as you see your kind of career and your design work, what, what do you hope from that, and what short to medium steps do you think people should do to, to reach those kind of futures? Anyone. Um, Anyone. I, I don't mean to answer her again, but I, one of the things that we talk about a lot in the disability community is the ways in which um, these sort of utopian fantasies um, that we experience in futures are actually dystopian nightmares for disabled people. Um, just you simply, if you look and you really start to consider who is it that is included in a future, what, you know, when's the last time you saw a disabled person in there? Um, and so... You know, futures is is um, an enthralling but also scary space for disabled people to navigate. Uh, something that you know we're clearly giving a lot of thought to. But it, I think the question I would ask is: is who who are you actually including in your your future? I mean, I guess um, it's a difficult one because I'm inherently a bit of a nihilist, really. Um, <laughs> future? What future? I mean, we're just going to head towards an inevitable heat death when the sun expands. Anyway, that's about five billion years, so nothing to worry about just yet. Um, I mean, as I riffing on a theme then, um, for the sake of time, I think advocacy, I think just one where people are, yeah, watching out for each other and being really intentional about it. Sometimes it can seem tokenistic, um, and I, I'm kind of repeating something else that I often say, but I think it's important to remember why sometimes doing the right thing can seem tokenistic and uncomfortable, and it's because the system that we're working with is already objectifying and tokenizing people. Um, and so sometimes you do need, in order to counter the unseeing, you do need to almost be very, very literal to begin with. Like, who is as different from me as possible? Who is not in this room? Who is not being spoken to? Who is not being listened to? Who is not being included? Even if it's like as basic as looking up ethnic minority statistics in your city or who or who tends to be homeless or whatever if that's what you need to do to start the seeing that kind of advocacy is like 
so key. And sorry, kind of jumping back to the earlier, to the previous question, I find that really fascinating because that's an example actually of of how this advocacy can begin. Because yeah, Laura's answer of like, yeah, talk to people. And actually, the one reason why people don't is because people don't want to talk, say, to finance, to HR, to marketing, who are setting the budget for that particular quarter to say, do you know what? You actually are going to start needing to provide some budget so that we can actually talk to people because we have to recompense them for their time. We also need legal advice to make sure that we're not exploiting people's time and their knowledge. And, and But that, that kind of awareness really only comes out when, A, we start decolonizing our, our structures, the way we work, and we really start thinking from this advocacy perspective that we're actually all in this together. We all need to work as a collective in order to make sure that we are actually making a collective futurity. Who knew? You know? I think that I wish that, in addition to what Florence said, that everyone... I think with that idea of talking to people, uh, I think that we need to read a little bit more and to read and center perspectives that are different than our own. Because as a multiply marginalized individual, I get asked, as I imagine this entire panel and maybe all of the speakers do, to do a lot of emotional labor of speaking on behalf of our communities. I think all four of us have done that on stage uh, here today. And it's exhausting for us to continue to educate people. It's an uphill battle. And I think that when you start reading perspectives that don't center your own, that is when you start to become aware of the world in a different way. And then I think the second thing I wish more people did selfishly was to analyze the mini communities. And what I mean by that is something I obsessively do is when I see a new conference, I do a lot of research in terms of all of the speakers to see how they identify. What is their race? What is their gender? Are they disabled? Are they queer? And it's almost always a very sad answer. It's almost always all white. Maybe every once in a while they throw in a few white women to feel good about themselves. Rarely disabled folks. Uh, rarely centering uh, very out and queer folks and trans folks. And so I wish that people that don't have to think about, people that sit in the default settings of being white and cisgendered and, and um, hetero, you are the ones that aren't attuned to having to see if there's someone that looks like you because by default there will be. So if you all start counting the numbers as obsessively as I do and being as critical and then using the privileges that you have intrinsic to that to start saying something in those rooms, it's going to be much easier for you to say something even if you feel uncomfortable and you're sweaty and you have like sweaty upper lip and you don't know the words maybe. But it's going to be easier for you. And the more you do it, the easier it becomes and the more people will get on board. And I think that's the idea of when one person demonstrates a little bit of bravery, I think it makes it easier for the next person. And I think that's the type of domino effect that we should try to incite within our small communities. Because if you think about the people that care about you most, like your friends, your colleagues, and your family, you have the most sway with them. So start there. What a wonderful note to end on. I think um, have, we've just had a tremendous diversity and depth of ideas here, and I thank you all for uh, sharing and for putting the work in. Um, thank you, too, to the new Adventures team. Fantastic. And thank you to all of you for being such an amazing audience. Thank you.
And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable. Presentable.